Hi everyone, this is Caleb, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Zach Wagner to talk with him about his brand new book, Non-Toxic Masculinity, Rediscovering, or sorry, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. And just to give you a little bit of a heads up, you know, this episode is going to be uh, uh, a little explicit to where we're just going to be very direct about um, much of this conversation uh, involving male uh, sexuality and just sexuality in general. So just giving you a little bit of a heads up on that. Now, if you have been listening for a while and you have uh, found yourself on the lifelong journey of learning, I would uh, recommend that you uh, follow me on my Substack, to where I just give a bunch of different recommendations for some of the different things that I am learning from, from books to comic books to movies and documentaries and music and really just anything that I am currently learning about. And you'll uh, keep up with all the things that I'm learning about if you go and subscribe to my Substack, which is found in the show notes. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Zach, and then we're going to jump right into this conversation. Zach Wagner is an ordained minister and editorial director for the Center for P- or for Pastor. Man, struggling a little bit today. He's the editorial director for the Center for Pastor Thea. Theologians. He is currently pursuing a PhD in New Testament at the University of Oxford, and he lives in Oxford, England, with his wife and three children. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Zach, it is so good to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, and you know, uh, you've written this book, Non-Toxic Masculinity, and one of the places that I love to start from time to time is anytime that someone creates a work of art, I love hearing the origin story behind it. And so I would love to hear from you kind of, um, you know, your introduction to purity culture and then even what made you want to, you know, just write this book as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it definitely, as you alluded to, it sits within this um, kind of genre of post-purity culture books. There have been a good handful of them from, you know, historical to autobiographical to theological um, books that have been written in the past, you know, six, seven years or so. Um, Interestingly, almost all of them have been written by women with uh, the one exception, I think, and I think you can rightly call it a post-purity culture book, is Matthias. Um, oh shoot, what's his last name? But it's a book called uh, Beyond Shame. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of stepping into this as as one of uh, the few kind of male voices in this conversation, potentially, and. Um, Matthias Roberts, that's it. That was bothering me. Um, so, but I grew up like, uh, you know, many people in the kind of conservative, mostly white evangelical space. I grew up very influenced by all these resources and rhetoric around purity culture as it's come to be described. Um, you know, Elizabeth Elliot, Joshua Harris, 
every man's battle, all of this stuff. Um, and that was very formative in, in my upbringing and the way that I was taught about relationships, about marriage, about sex and, um, what it meant to be a man as well was a big part of it. Um, so then, uh, fast forward, um, you know, a decade or more and I'm now married, um, and have, uh, been married for a few years and, um, you know, I share all this in the book and my wife is very, um, open and gives her consent to kind of me talking about and, and sharing about this, but, um, we hit a, a phase in our life where in our, our life together, where our, um, our intimate relationship just wasn't working and, um, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of functioning in a way that it had in the past and, uh, very long story short, um, one of the revelations that came out of that was that uh, my wife, Shelby, is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and she hadn't fully been aware of it or even thought about it in that in that those categories um, previously. But that kind of turned um, kind of her conception of her own life as well as um, our relationship. And then a lot of things for me, it just kind of turned a lot of this upside down. And that started a long process of me beginning to wrestle with and grapple with the inheritance that I'd received in terms of what sex, masculinity, and, and marriage, all of these things were about. Um, so that's one big piece. The other big piece is these ongoing abuse scandals that continue to plague the church and Christian organizations and the... I think examples of what you could call toxic masculinity that keeps showing up too often within when in Christian spaces. And a really extreme example of this was uh, that had a significant effect on me was in early 2021. The uh, some listeners may remember the Atlanta spa shootings um, where there was this guy who went on a shooting spree at various massage parlors in the Atlanta area and uh, was arrested and when he was being interviewed by the police afterwards and they're asking him about his motive why he did this what he said was that he's a sex addict and he was and i think he thought of this as like a public service he was eliminating his temptation by killing uh, these women who worked in these massage parlors and then it came came out a little after that that he's a baptized member of a Southern Baptist church in the area, and uh, there that really disturbed me because I saw in the way that this guy was thinking, this kind of dehumanizing attitude towards women as sources of sexual temptation, that he had taken to a logical extreme as a justification for violence, which. I absolutely didn't resonate with, but what disturbed me about it was the, that it was the logical flow was recognizable to me from mm -hmm. the resources that I had been reared on the way of talking about male sexuality that I had received growing up. So those two things, this, this crisis point 
in my marriage, this crisis point in the wider church having to do with abuse and male violence, all of this time together in sexuality. I wrote a little article in response to that shooting and uh, through some conversations with some friends and uh, mentors connected with uh, folks over at IVP and it became a book contract and now we're talking about the book two years later. So pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah. You know, I want, I want to touch on a couple of things that you mentioned there. And uh, to, before that, I want to read this quote that you have in the book, because I think it ties into what I want to ask you about. Mm. Um, you say, in recent years, I've come to believe that the church itself instilled and confirmed in me many unhelpful and untrue ideas about God, myself, men, and women. And I'd love for you to touch on, you know, what some of those are and how that leads or how that can lead to something like you were talking about with the Atlanta uh, shooting, if those ideas and some of those things are taken to the extreme. Sure. Yeah. I'll try to do those in order. You might have to remind me of the sequence yeah. of them, but ideas yep. about uh, ideas about God, maybe to start. Number one is, I think many people perhaps who grew up in this era and you know attended youth group uh at various churches and and this varied a ton um and this wasn't true of every space but it was often true of the spaces that i was in there was this fixation on sexuality and sexual sin as like the essence of what it meant to either be a good and holy christian or a failure of a christian or something like that and particularly for teens so much of our discipleship revolved around our sexuality. So what that communicated, and I think what I internalized in my vision of God was that God was not especially patient with my sexual struggles, if you want to call them that, my curiosity about sexuality, um, and that he expected this really high bar of perfection. Um, you know, you talk about works righteousness. Ironically, a lot of people who would, you know, be speaking really strongly against works righteousness in a kind of evangelical Protestant tradition, I think actually, I again, ironically, reached a certain type of works righteousness around sexuality where you need to be perfect for God to love you in this area or to see you as valuable. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that never would have been articulated to me in so many words. Like no one would have said mm -hmm. like the thing that God cares most about is your sexuality, but the excessive airtime that was given to that, um, whether it's, and this varies for people, whether it was in your home, in your relationships, from your pastor, or who knows, uh, that communicates something about God. And that sometimes, um, you know, some have called this like a sexual exceptionalism in that sexual sins are the worst type of sins. And um, it, it leads one to believe that God isn't, yeah, if God, if God is as preoccupied with sex as we are, perhaps. Um, 
yeah. sometimes. So yeah, ideas about God. What was the next one? Can you remind me? Uh, myself. Myself. Yeah. So, I mean, related to that, this idea that my sexual brokenness like gets to the deepest, darkest brokenness of who I am. And of, of course I'm sexually broken and we, we all are. And, um, but my sexuality was a dark and terrible thing about me, I think was this like very dangerous thing that needed to be like kept under wraps and was going to destroy me. And um, I was kind of helpless and hopelessly uh, vulnerable to those urges or whatever the case may be. Um, and then I think it goes on from them to talk about men and women. So um, I think that one of the central ideas is this idea that men are as a species, if you want to say that, or like as a group are helplessly and hopelessly hypersexual. And like what it means to be a man is to be quote unquote visual or view the world through an erotic lens all the time. And that's not something that you can mature out of. It's just something to be managed and uh, directed towards your wife or your future wife or something like that. And um, tied in with that is this vision of women as sexual objects, ironically enough. And, um, you know, and the reason I say that's ironic is because Christians would... I think most Christians would look at the culture and say the culture devalues and uh, objectifies women around sexuality and we shouldn't do that. But then the way Christians obsess about sexuality, I think ironically in a different way falls into the, some of the same ditches of hypersexualizing and over-sexualizing women. So something I say in the book is that in purity culture, Men are sex machines and women are sexual objects, which, um, again, ironically, seems to be a, a baptizing of some really terrible cultural tropes within the broader culture uh, that Christians, I think, would want to be speaking against rather than adopting for themselves. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the harm that comes from, like, see, seeing ourselves, you know, either as... Um... You know, if we're men seeing ourselves as sexual machines or interpreting or getting that message. And then also for viewing women as uh, sexual objects and even like the vice versa of like women viewing men as sex machines and, and men yes. viewing women as sexual objects. Yeah, well, one thing I mean, there's so many things you could say. One thing that comes to mind right away, I appreciate the way you framed that as as like vice versa. And it goes both ways. Like not only when men view themselves as sex machines and view women as sexual objects, but when women also view themselves as sexual objects and view men as sex machines, it really creates this um, predatory cultural space, or, or at least a space in which, at the very least, a space in which predators can um, can function. And when predators act in predatory ways it's viewed as an inevitable outworking of what it means to be male. Um, the, the overwhelming majority of sexual predators are male, not exclusively, but it's um, overwhelming majority. Mm -hmm. But I do want to acknowledge that there are uh, 
many male survivors of sexual abuse and assault and uh in some some not not ex yeah in some cases there are, are uh, female assailants so i want to qualify that but the overwhelming majority of um sexual abuse and predation is um is is acted out by men so in that system just to return to the point that I was making, when a man acts in a predatory way, it's not necessarily viewed as something that he shouldn't have done or he should have known better. It's instead just like, well, that's what it means to be a dude. And to the woman or the child uh, in some, some of these situations, it is somehow seen as her or his fault. Um, that they placed the man in this situation. And as Christians, I kind of want to just say, no, <laughs> like the everyone is responsible um, for their own sinful choices. And uh, certainly in cases where there's a power imbalance, as there often is between men and women, and certainly between um, older uh, boys and men and and younger men or children so uh that's one thing that comes to mind it creates this kind of culture where um predatory behavior is seen as somehow normal um and then but it also kind of even broader than that it creates a culture of distrust between the sexes where you're kind of always looking over your shoulder and like what are her intentions is he going to try to hurt me is it safe for us to be having this conversation? And I'm not saying like you shouldn't be wise and uh, guarded to a certain extent in relationships. And I'm certainly not advocating for shrugging off any kind of just <laughs> common sense, uh, not, not, not necessarily boundaries, but perhaps uh, boundaries and um, just best practices and, and how to, interact in in relationships but when the entire essence of what it means to be male and female is sexualized in these ways it to me creates a barrier in the community to authentic relationship and men are cut off from friendships with women women are cut off from friendships with men we're not viewing each other as brothers and sisters uh we're instead viewing each other's as potential sex partners and um that is um, I think a fallout of the mutuality of absorbing that that view of men and women. Um, and then I, this is something I talk about in the book at at length is I, I think it just dehumanizes in both directions. So for men, it's kind of like a selling yourself short. Like I can't live in a way that respects others and respects myself. I am helpless to these desires and that's just what it means to be me and i'm kind of an animal and that's there's no escaping that and there's no growing beyond that um and then obviously for women when women are reduced reduced to their their body parts or hypersexualized in the way that men think about or police their clothing or talk about them um that is to me, obviously dehumanizing. And it reduces women to their erotic 
potential or their sexual utility and uh, doesn't treat them as as human beings, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Of human well, beings for whom for whom their sexuality is a part of their humanity, not the sum total yeah. of it. I think that's that's what I'm trying to say with that. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I would love for you to touch on that just came to my mind, uh, which you talk about in the book, is almost this uh, this idea of like the fairy tale notion as it pertains to relationships of, you know, you have women, you know, being being the princess or being, um, you know, the yes, you know, just just the princess role. And then the man being like the the prince role, the hero role. Can you talk about yeah. that dynamic and like how that ends up playing itself out in terms of you know dating and and all of that sure yeah yeah and this is something that i talk about in the book you know i talk about um i talk about prince charming and uh disney princes not princesses Mm -hmm. disney princes and the way the kind of narratives particularly in the western world around heroic masculinity and i don't want to like discourage men from being heroic like certainly not and i think the way that god has designed many men to be courageous and heroic and strong is you know it's a it's a wonderful thing about Mm -hmm. being a man for 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 many men but i do want to highlight the fact that in it seems to me that particularly the western cultural story heroicism and often like a violent heroicism is associated with a certain subtext of sexual conquest you know slay the dragon get the girl so this i think leads to a very formulaic and mechanistic way of thinking about relationships that doesn't let one it makes romance and sex like the reason that you're acting in a virtuous way you're 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 doing something heroic or you're acting gentlemanly so that a woman will respond to you with her romantic or even sexual affection and i'm not saying like it never works like that like certainly there are relational contexts in which um that's in some ways part of someone's story and that's um endear like some some women uh, not all but some women find that very endearing and exciting and and love being pursued in that way and i don't want to like I don't want to dismiss that, but the way it's standardized um, can become very problematic, particularly when men view themselves as deserving or entitled to a woman's affection because they act a certain way towards her. That I think is some some of the, this is very subtle, but I think it's important. Um, Excuse me. Um, The way that a kind of plug and play vision of romance and sexuality and marriage can become dehumanizing to women, especially, and it can encourage a a type of bravado, violent, heroic masculinity that can just be a hair's breadth away from a sense of entitlement to female affection. 
Um, and I want to say, like, again, I'm all for men acting heroically. Just don't do it because you think you're going to get sex at the other side of it. Like, you know, it's it's just if, you know, men and women, boys and girls should do courageous and heroic things and help others and and serve others and um, be willing to put themselves in situations that uh, are protecting others from harm or whatever the case may be. That doesn't need to be an exclusively male thing, number one. Number two, it doesn't need to be so tightly wedded to romance and sexuality in a way that I, I think is the subtext of uh, so many of these tropes. So, like, I don't want to, like, I felt weird going after Prince Charming. Yeah. But I did want to highlight some of the subtext of that because I, I do think, you know, I'll just speak for myself. I do think I internalized some of those tropes in my view of romantic relationships. Um, that if I, the way to get a girl to like me is to do something impressive and heroic and that will guarantee some sort of romantic outcome um, that... Uh, I think can can be harmful if it's assumed. Yeah, I mean, even you know, going through the book, I I identify as well, and you know, very much find myself, um, especially you know, in, in previous relationships. You know, I told you that I you know just got married and everything. So yeah, thankfully, not again. in this relationship. Yeah. Um, but uh, definitely in previous relationships of exactly what you were saying. Well, I did you know X, Y, and Z thing. Mm-hmm. She should want to love me because I did yes. those things. And yes. it's just funny how that, like, that uh, obviously is not, you know, that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another thing, it ties, I mean, I appreciate you talking about the, because there are different ways this plays out. It plays out in, you know, quote unquote, pre-marriage relationships. Mm -hmm. But I think this can also, uh, not quite the same thing as the kind of Prince Charming uh narrative but i think there can be a transaction it, like it's all transactional it's like mm -hmm. the man puts in some like a nice dinner or i you know beat up the guy who is being mean to you or you know bought you a nice ring or something like that on his side and then the woman is expected to return affection and and sexual favors in in many yeah. cases um so that's the kind of like cultural exchange uh narrative that i think mm -hmm. is tied to this but i think also in marriage i think a lot of a lot of men will if they really are honest with themselves do you do the things that you do for your partner, for your wife, in hopes that she will return the favor sexually down the line? Mm -hmm. And that can be an uncomfortable question to ask yourself. It could also be an uncomfortable question to ask her. Like, what, is, this, is this something that makes you feel pressured to quote unquote return the favor in this way and of course there's a lot of beautiful giving that goes both ways sexual and otherwise in in marriage yeah. 
but it can become transactional in a way that I think is unhelpful and unhealthy um, in many marriages. So like guys, like do you quote unquote help with the dishes or like change a diaper because that pays dividends sexually later? And I'm not saying like it's not out of bounds for a wife to, you know, feel some sense of appreciation and want to express that in a in a sexual way that's not out of bounds but it's just again it's just a very subtle nuancey thing um and that's something that i think a lot of men could do to do so could do some soul searching on like is is this actually about serving her or is this in hopes that she will serve me in in some other way down the line so mm-hmm. it's a little, it's it's related to what we were talking about, yeah. but something I thought of. Well, even, even what you were saying, talking about the transactional, I think for me, the way that I've thought about it is um, like, it's just, it's love with conditions. You know, you do this, I'll do this. And it's not unconditional love. You know, yes. unconditional love yes. is I'm going to love you regardless of what you do for me, whether yes. that's, you know, sexual or not sexual. And the conditions mm-hmm. or the transactional, just what you said is, well, I'm doing it, but I'm doing it with hope of a return. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, you know, I think the next thing I want to ask you about is um, purity culture as well. And sure. I, I love uh, I love your definition of it. So I'm going to read it uh, real quick. And then oh, I yeah. want to ask you uh, about what made what what do you think made purity culture so attractive and why it lasted so long? Oh, sure. Um But first you say, you know, purity culture refers to the theological assumptions, discipleship materials, events, and rhetorical strategies used to promote traditional Christian sexual ethics in response to the sexual revolution. And so, yeah, I'd just love to hear what, uh, like, why do you think purity culture has endured for so long? And like, what, what made it initially like so, because it was attractive. It was so attractive that Mm -hmm. so many churches decided to you know, pursue this route. Yeah. Well, I think the, the cultural disruption of the sexual revolution of the sixties and seventies, it really can't be overstated. Like that was a, that was a huge deal. What happened in the, in the 1960s and 1970s in terms of women's liberation and the separation of not only sex from marriage but children from sex and um a emerging um emerging grappling with uh, non-heterosexual identity all of these things and that was I, you know, rightly, I think, to to a large extent, I think Christians were right to be concerned about the the trends that they saw in the wider culture associated with the sexual revolution. And particularly in like the 80s, when the purity culture rhetoric was emerging and taking shape, not that it hadn't been present before, I th- I think it was off. It was in response to things like teen pregnancy and, um, you know, STDs and the the AIDS crisis and all of these things that Christians, 
would not to say that Christians weren't participating in this. Like they, they were like, it's not like the wider culture was doing these things and Christians were totally immune from it. Um, but I think adults saw this and feared the consequences of sexual liberation. If you want to use that language for their kids and didn't want their kids to be kind of sucked up into this crazy powerful cultural movement of the sexual revolution. So purity culture was powerful because it, it offered an alternative vision for sexuality to what was the emerging cultural, new cultural consensus around sexuality. And that dynamic continues to till today. Um, the other reason it was powerful, and this was a stroke of mark, you know, this was a stroke of marketing Jesus, uh, uh, marketing, marketing Jesus. There's maybe something Freudian going on there, <laughs> but marketing genius that purity culture capitalized on the cultural obsession with sex. Um, and it would, it would be great if it weren't just a flat out lie that following God's quote unquote rules around or, or design for sex was actually the way to guarantee your, your, your greatest sex life. So you know, people who particularly, you know, in the nineties ish, when this was common, like rallies and different things around sexuality and saving yourself for marriage rhetoric was very popular. Um, a lot of times this was framed in like the way to get your best sex life is to wait till marriage and then you'll have no shame. You'll be totally free and your sex life will be awesome. And by the way, first Corinthians seven says, do not, do not deprive one another. So you're not even, you're not even allowed to say no. She's not even allowed to say no is often the subtext of that. And, uh, you know, it's just going to be a sexual paradise if if you follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, your marriage is guaranteed to fall apart and your sex life is always going to be haunted by these past relationships or whatever the case may be. And that's that's powerful rhetoric, it seems to me. If teenagers, you know, because puberty are pretty preoccupied with sexuality and what it's all going to mean for them and whether they're going to feel wanted and be able to experience this part of being human. And uh, purity culture kind of entered into that uncertainty by offering a type of certainty saying this God, again, it was, it was sometimes, but at least in my experience, it wasn't usually framed so explicitly as God promises you a beautiful spouse and marriage and sex life if you do it this way. Um, and there's just there there was there was a a beauty to the kind of simplicity of it, mm -hmm. and um, again, it would be great if it were if it weren't just a straight up lie. Um, there is no uh, guaranteed formula for sexual satisfaction, quote unquote, in, in a broken world. And uh, survivors of sexual abuse know that. And um, 
people who, you know, saved themselves for marriage only to find uh, sexual struggle on the other side of that divide um, are also painfully aware of that. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of reasons it was it was powerful for parents because, you know, sex is a complicated thing and they wanted to help young people and their kids navigate that part of life. And there seemed to be an appearance of wisdom to this kind of purity culture approach. And it was captivating for kids because you had a sense that you were pleasing God and, uh, you know, guaranteeing a positive return on your sexual investment down the line. And uh, it, it, it presented itself as protecting you from sexual suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what came to my mind as I was listening to you talk is just this idea of like purity culture just seems like very incomplete and it's in its incompleteness mm. that ended up creating a ton of harm for so many, for so many people in so many different ways. And, you know, I was just, just wondering like, and, and again, you can, you could reject the premise if, if you want to, <laughs> um, but like, what do you think that purity culture was missing? Because in some like not not definitely not all mm. of it, but in some aspects there is some good in there. There is some there is some good, yeah. so, lots of yeah. good and in, good intentions to be sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And I and and this is something that, uh, you know, some of the critics of purity culture, I think, can have a really hard time in identifying and appreciating. Um. But I'll just say that the the connection between sex and children and marriage. You okay? So this is actually helpful because you can talk about the incompleteness. Mm-hmm. Children didn't get talked about in purity culture a lot. It was all sex and marriage. It was sex and marriage go together. And I think that's that's a good. It's a good the theological instinct. Um, that has carried through virtually all of the Christian tradition. And it's also a really profoundly humanizing instinct, it seems to me, that sexual intimacy goes together with a lifelong commitment to a person. I think that's right. But... I also respect that there are people that feel differently about that and respect that there are huge cultural forces that feel differently about that. But that is, that is the Christian tradition on sexuality. It, it flat out is. So in as much as purity culture, and I don't think it navigated this tension well, but in as much as purity culture was trying to uphold the Christian way of thinking about sex uh, I think that was a good thing. Uh, I think Protestants in particular have separated out children from marriage and sex uh, too much sometimes in a way that left the door open to purity culture in a way that r- the Roman Catholic tradition has not. The Roman Catholic tradition um, ties these very closely together still to this day. Um, and I think that's why a movement like 
purity culture would not emerge from the Catholic Church. Um, so, yeah, so that's that gets at some incompleteness as well as some of what is good there. And again, I think another thing that's good that I've already alluded to a couple times in the conversation is it makes sense that you we want to help young people navigate how to live out their sexuality in a way that not only is pleasing to God, but in a way that dignifies others in a way that respects the power that this aspect of being human has uh, both for creating life and uh, flourishing, but also doing harm. Um, That's good. Like it's good to, it's good to guide kids mm-hmm. um, on how to live into their sexuality. I, it, it does not seem to me that it's good to, kind of just completely step back and hands off kids can figure out sexuality for themselves. Maybe that seems like it goes without saying, but I think there are some trends overreactions to purity culture that lean in that direction in a way that I'm not entirely comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like creating boundaries is also, is also, is also good. Like it's maybe awkward for someone critiquing purity culture to say that boundaries are a good thing. And I'm sure there may be people out there that might say, I'm just kind of purity culture 2.0 on this. Uh, But I, I, I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that people and kids and parents um, should all consider what boundaries might look like for their sexuality. Um, Mm -hmm and uh, romantic relationships and whatever the case may be all of these things purity culture took to an extreme that uh, i thought was unhelpful and then the last thing i was going to say was just a theological substructure um i don't think the the theological system behind purity culture was all that sophisticated or really all that christian ironically i think it was a kind of prosperity gospel-ish God as a genie that's guaranteeing me a certain positive outcome if I make the correct sacrifices or jump through the right hoops. And uh, that shows me to not be a worshiper of God, but actually a worshiper of sex. And then I'm using God as a means to give me access to sex. Um, And... uh, yeah, just not a robust vision for why sexuality is good, why sex is good, why embodiment is good, um, how the incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus, um, person of Jesus ties into uh, our sexuality um, and our sexual ethics. So a few, few different places you can you can go there. Yeah. Yeah. Um... You know, I think that the next thing that I want to ask you about is because I definitely want to make sure that we talk uh, about this next part, just because I think you have such a fascinating quote um, and it's a it's about pornography as well. Mm. And, uh, you know, I want to I want to read this quote and then I, I want to have you elaborate because it, it's sure. just a very it's a very thought provoking quote. And I think I had to read it a couple of times. Um, but you say Christian books on sex often bemoan the unfair standard created by the youthful, peppy, full-breasted women that feature in so much porn. 
But the way women look in pornography is not, in my estimation, what's most problematic. For instance, boys are taught precious little in porn about how female bodies work, including the embodied realities of menstruation, vaginal lubrication, and uh, clitoris. I always forget. I'm always horrible with. Yeah, clitoris. (laughs) Thank you. Um, But I would would love for you to elaborate on that and talk to me about why you find the – the latter, not, and again, not that you're, you're endorsing, you know, the, the former, but just why yep. the latter is, is more problematic in your opinion. Yeah. And I say this elsewhere in the book, I was reading over that section and it's not, again, it's not that I say it elsewhere, but yeah. uh, I'm not sure if this was in the, in the editor. I can't remember exactly how this happened, but one of the things I would want to elaborate on there is the constant availability of women in porn is part of what i'm getting at there um or wanted to get at and also this kind of vision of women as being there for men's gratification that to me is a deeper kind of soul issue that pornography feeds into that is more damaging than just unrealistic standards of beauty as harmful as those are as well so un you know unrealistic beauty standards are very damaging um to men and there are men who you know for instance will struggle with like erectile dysfunction in marriage or down the line because they're so kind of just immersed in a pornographic vision of sex that sex with a real woman is 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 hard to be present in for them so that's obviously very harmful and damaging and would be really painful to be in a relationship Mm -hmm. with a man who has that type of experience in his body um but this kind of dehumanizing vision of women as constantly available and constantly there for a man's sexual advance, gratification, arousal, oriented towards his pleasure, not really, you know, needing uh, or expecting anything in return from him in the sexual interaction. Uh, that it seems to me is. Uh, harmful in a you know i don't want to rank harms necessary necessarily but Mm -hmm. uh to me it seems that that's getting to something deeper and even more dehumanizing um yeah so something i do say later and this is the thing that it's like oh i wish i would have had a a version of that sentence here too is that pornography teaches men that women are and and you know if you're married your wife is constantly be like constantly available to your arousal and every erotic whim because if you're you know a single guy or a married guy who has the urge to look at porn it's available literally whenever you want it. So it's, there's no just adult 
self-controlled discipline of saying, yeah, I might feel aroused right now, but that's not going to happen in this moment for any variety of reasons. And I'm just going to deal with that and move on in my day like a grown up and just do whatever I need to do right now. And there will be a time and a place for that, um, you know, sometime in the future or uh, down the line or, or maybe not. Maybe it's just I don't use that feeling as an entitlement to that gratification. Um, and I think porn pushes men and forms men to closely associate any erotic feeling with a, a, a erotic gratification that is uh, separated from relationship. Mm -hmm. I do want to turn the corner a little bit and talk about like non-toxic sure. masculinity and uh, more of like a healthy and positive vision for male sexuality. But before that, I'd just love to, you know, just touch on anything that that comes to mind for you in terms of what that toxicity looks like in an unhealthy way for male uh, sexuality that just comes to mind. And, and we may, we've covered a lot of it. So um, sure. if you want to move on that we're, I'm good with that, but I just want to give you a chance in case anything else comes to mind. Yeah. I think just to summarize, I would say, I think entitlement is a big part of it. And I think this is mm -hmm. entitlement figures largely in the kind of cultural discourse around toxic masculinity, men's entitlement to, space or uh influence or uh setting the agenda for a relationship or a company or an initiative or something like this um men's concerns being primary in culture in relationships in institutions um i see all of that playing out all of that a sexual dynamic you know when men feel entitled to women's bodies they abuse and assault women and when married men feel entitled to their wives bodies um that obviously runs the risk of dehumanizing and harming her which no husband should be okay with doing um and also i think the way cultural dynamics around sex privilege and center male gratification is toxic and uh dehumanizing you know i create this connection in the book between toxicity and dehumanization mm -hmm. um, and you know the work of for instance sheila gregoire and company in the great sex rescue and other books and uh resources that they put out on their website which goes by bear marriage is the is the name of the website and their kind of resource and podcast hub i think is going to is trying to address a lot of this kind of centering of male pleasure in sexual relationships and marriages and trying to work against that and i i think that's that's really good work um so yeah those are some of the ways i think a, a toxic entitled um dominant uh and and repressive masculinity can play out in, in sexual yeah. situations yeah well let's let's talk about non-toxic masculinity and what that positive yeah. vision for for male healthy male sexuality can look like 
Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I, you know, I, I dip my toe in the, like, what is biblical masculinity conversation? Yeah. It's a bigger conversation. It's a bigger conversation than my book is directly engaging in. But I think too often when, uh, you know, men and Christians are looking to the Bible for guidance on what it means to be a godly man or something like that. They tend to focus in too much on this leadership language that they sometimes see. And ironically, men in the New Testament are never told to lead their wives. They are told to love their wives. Uh, that's an important thing to note, first of all. But despite mm -hmm. that, um, I think there are certain ways of articulating a vision of godly masculinity that fixate on this idea of being a leader and um, being even being strong. Um, but biblically, um, let's just talk about strength. In the New Testament, the message of the gospel actually undermines massively the value of physical strength. Um, you know, Jesus being crucified was um, a profoundly emasculating experience. If if Jesus is a and being willing to submit to that, if Jesus is a model of Christian masculinity, is something something to keep in mind. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about in First Corinthians that God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And if that's um, not raising some questions for what strong godly masculinity looks like, uh, I think you need to, you need to look closer at what is going on, particularly in those early chapters of first Corinthians. Um. So what I want to come back to and what I try to center a vision for non-toxic masculinity on is the fruit of the spirit and the Christian virtue exhortations that we see all throughout the New Testament. So, but the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not a lot of stereotypical masculine virtues there at least by kind of modern western standards and kind of recapturing or challenging uh what our vision of godly masculinity should be needs to be refracted through those christian virtues that are cultivated in believers by the work of the holy spirit um, yeah, so I'll start there and, uh, mm -hmm. would be happy to hear any responses or follow-up questions that you, that you have. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to what you mentioned and, and kind of compare and contrast, you know, you mentioned, uh, we can have a tendency to lead instead of love. And yeah. so can you compare and contrast like that dynamic of like, okay, so what does, what does leading versus look like versus what loving might look like? Yeah, I mean, I try not to, um, because, you know, I don't, at this stage in my journey, have interest in 
going hard after all conceptions of male headship as they exist mm -hmm. in the Christian spaces. Um, there are many ways of living out male headship and placing emphasis on that that are extremely concerning to me. In fact, that's a big reason why I wrote the book. But um, one of the things that I want to emphasize as it relates to the differences, uh, you know, generally speaking, between men and women is, um, perhaps not surprisingly, um, that of physical strength. And uh, I talk about this in the book. I describe it as embodied male advantage. And by that, I mean this thing that's just written into the fabric of creation that on average, men are larger and stronger physically than women. And I think downstream from that embodied male advantage physically is what we would describe as male privilege oftentimes in our in our culture. Like the way society is built, um, you know, and has been built for millennia is an outworking of is this, this male embodied advantage. So... Um, when I think about, and you know, I'm still in process in a lot of this and, and how I, how I work through this, but when I think about male leadership, I tend to think of the Bible as, um, articulating something related to embodied male advantage and leading means leveraging that advantage in a way that is not done to selfish ends, ends or self-gratification or your own power advantage um uh you know influence whatever the case may be but rather doing it in such a way that serves elevates um protects and uh really in a full orbed way seeks the flourishing of others uh including including obviously women mm -hmm. um so to some extent, I think Christian men should be in the practice of the, the, you know, if there are advantages physically associated with being male, there are certain disadvantages associated with being female. And, you know, a, a central one of these is, is pregnancy, um, is that pregnancy um, makes women profoundly um, vulnerable and disadvantaged not only the nine months of gestation, but, you know, if you breastfeed afterwards and uh, all the changes that happen uh, to the female body just around procreation are um, profoundly uh, just vulnerable and limiting. And one of the practical ways that I could see, quote unquote, male leadership working out is, and I think many, many men want to do this and do do this in fact is trying to mitigate and um account for their physical advantages and um you know a, a woman's physical limitations or disadvantages relative to that in a way that means she doesn't need to be dehumanized or lose out on her job or her passions or her uh you know, desires for relationship or whatever the case may be, because the 
differences between male embodiment and female embodiment place her at a disadvantage in that situation. Um, that I that to me is uh, outworking. Like you can describe it as as leadership, but I, again, I mm-hmm. I just think it's love. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a it's a desire for the good and flourishing of the other. It's a desire of it's a desire to see disadvantages um, associated with female embodiment in that way, not work out in a way that dehumanizes and um, degrades her. Um, yeah, that wasn't exactly where I was expecting to go with that question, but that's that's <laughs> that's, that's that's where we went. Hey, that that's the fun part of conversations. Just get into unexpected yeah. places. Uh, one other thing that I want to ask you about, uh, you know, at, at, it's towards the end of the book. I can't remember if it's the the last chapter or not. It's definitely one of the last chapters. Is um, you talk about the need for men to reassociate male sexuality with fatherhood, and even though I'm not yes. a dad, uh, that was so incredibly challenging to me personally, mm. like even just doing like an inventory of like my own um, relationships and even just like the kids that I invest in. And so I would love for you just to expound on that um, idea more and even, you know, taking it beyond, you know, just literal dads and, you know, you can go spiritual fathers or, or just however you want to take it. Yeah. I, I think this, and I've alluded to this already um, in that I think in the best parts of the Christian tradition, there is an inseparable, not like a overly dogmatic, but an inseparable connection between marriage and sexuality and children. And I think so much of the debates in our culture are around sexuality often highlight the fact that women have carried too much of the weight with, I mean, this is what we were just talking about with pregnancy carried too much of the weight of what sexuality means relative to children in that relationship. But that's, that's just obviously like women don't get pregnant by themselves. So the, uh, every man, um, yeah, maybe you can frame it from this direction. No child can be separated from the sexual choices of his father, Hmm. um, positive or negative. And, uh, I think it's like, I'm really glad to hear that. It kind of, I like that inventory language that you used. Um, I think a lot of men would do good to think through because it was when I kind of came to appreciate this it was a healing thing for me as well just like sex isn't just this thing that's out there and i gotta like follow the rules and be good and not do it in ways that um pursue it in ways that are harming you know my wife or you know offensive to god or lusting after somebody or whatever the case may be that's all very just kind of like separated out and like sex is just something I do, but sex has a, a telos. It has a goal and a very clear goal of sexuality is procreation. And, um, I think, uh, when I saw that connection 
more more clearly it's not like i didn't see it before um and i realized or came to realize perhaps that god made me sexual to show me that even the pursuit of pleasure if you want to call it that implies a certain commitment to other people and can imply a massive weight of responsibility for becoming, you know, literally becoming a dad. You know, sex, having sex doesn't necessarily feel like a weighty thing in the moment. But if out of that relationship in that context, you become a dad, it's hard to think of anything more profound and weighty. And those things are connected together. And um, so that's number one. And then the other part of your question is, well, what does that look like for men who can't have children, aren't in that relationship where they can? Those men, I want to say, are still sexual beings. So that connection can still work in a certain sense. Not in the sense that, you know, my body is going to be used in a way that will create new life but this part of me that is innate to me being a man was designed to be life-giving so then how do i live out my calling my vocation as a man that honors that fatherly paternal calling um that's wired into me um so i think there are many ways that this can work out i i don't think it has to be you know, there are many men who are excellent fathers, quote unquote, uh, even though they've never literally fathered children and they mm -hmm. pursue relationships with children. And um, but I would also extend this to relationships with other adults. Is there there's a way of caretaking and, um, you know, cultivating a a way of being in the world and being in relationships that tries to help others grow up is a central part of the calling of fatherhood. Um, but it doesn't just have to even be oriented towards people, I want to say. It, it can also be oriented towards the things that you do, your work. Is there, there, there's, I think, a fatherly way of cultivating the creation. I mean, you know, you think back to the garden, Adam and Eve are called to in a certain way to be the mother and father of the world. And I think all human beings um, participate in that cultivation of creation and uh, a, a, a guiding and a nurturing of creation and other people towards growing up into what, what God uh, made them to be. Mm -hmm. Last thing I want to ask is how did that realization, like what, what difference did that make in you life? How, in your life, how did you change once you, you know, realized that or came to realize that about fatherhood? Um, yeah, I think it helped me start making connections about my sexuality to all different aspects of life. I think this is mm -hmm. something that, and you know, I, I want it. It's, it's a, it's a little chapter in a book that, you know, I, you know, I wish I could think about and say so much more about, and I still feel like I need to do so much thinking about it, but it's something that so many people I think struggle with, like particularly single people or 
and I should say single people who um, choose to abstain from from sex uh, because they're single or they're not in a relationship. Um, like, what is my sexuality doing right now exactly? Is it just sitting on the shelf? Um, is it, do I just hide it under a bushel? Do I lock it up so it doesn't get out and hurt somebody? Um, and I think this kind of generous vision of fatherhood for men can start to allow for some ways of thinking about that part of you that craves relationships and connection and nurturing and life-giving um, can connect to other things than just who you have sex with. Um, so I think for me, just my purity culture upbringing to go back to that had me just kind of fixating my sexuality on sex, if that makes sense. And this connection to fatherhood, I think has invited me into a more creative, generous way of thinking about how that part of myself um, connects to all aspects of my life, really, um, mm -hmm. in relationships with all manner of people, um, you know, men and women other than my wife and all sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. And the other big thing is that, and I already said this in a way, it shows me that sex is not just about me feeling good and getting what I want. Like when I am taking, you know, as we're, as we're, um, recording this interview, my wife is out of town with uh, our baby and I'm um, home alone this week with um, older kids. And like, man, taking care of kids is uh, so much work. And, um, but it's, 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 it's hard, but it's also wonderful. And um, I think that way of thinking about my sexuality has, um, invited me to think of those moments where it's like man i'm just being a dad right now and this is just so all-consuming and distracting and there are other things that i wish i could be doing but this is a really good and beautiful part of what it means to be a sexual person is that these kids that um you know god blessed me to have um a part of bringing into the world Mm -hmm. um, that responsibility is implied in male sexuality. And uh, it's not about just having a good time. It's about committing for the long haul to other people's good mm -hmm. um, in a way that is not very often does not feel about self-gratification. Self it's so fulfilling and there's so much purpose associated with it. Um, but there's massive amounts of self-sacrifice. So I think we can have this vision of sexuality. That's all. Well, sex is about self-fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And I think the connection of sex to parenthood, to fatherhood shows so clearly that even something that can be very fulfilling um, also implies perhaps more than anything else in the human experience that I can think of that's so universal, um, 
just really, really profound experiences of self-sacrifice. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Zach, I know that people are going to want to, you know, get the book Non-Toxic Masculinity and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah. Um, so it's published with InterVarsity Press. So ivpress.com if you want to order it directly from them. You can also find it, I mean, starting April 4th, depending on when this podcast goes live. Um, it, it'll be out. It, it'll be out. Or okay. The book will be out by okay. the time this goes out. Yeah. Okay, great. So Amazon and, you know, wherever books are sold, I can't speak for how, how um, it's going to show up in your local bookstore or Barnes and Noble or something like that. But I'd love, I'd love it if it did. Um, yeah. So yeah, you can find, find the book, those places. And um, uh, as far as keeping up with me, the best place to do that is probably Twitter. Um, that's the kind of social media outlet where I'm somewhat active. So my handle there is Zachary C. Wagner, um, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-C-W-A-G-N-E-R. Awesome. Well, Zach, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for a great conversation and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Caleb. So I think coming out of this conversation, there's a couple of things that have got me thinking and even just from my own uh, engagement with the book as well. The first is what Zach mentioned about entitlement and, and really, and then really, I guess it's just more doing this for so many different aspects of the book, but of taking a personal inventory of where some of this stuff has creeped in to your life especially for men. Where have some of these ideas around sex and masculinity and and where has it got gotten toxic? Whether that be around entitlement, whether that be of giving up some of your responsibilities or thinking about what you're owed in that. And even realizing some and you know sometimes you could think about this in the negative sense of the word of what are you not doing? But maybe it's, what could you be doing more of? How could you be fully living into this this vision of positive male sexuality? What responsibilities do you need to pick up? Where What areas of sacrifice do you need to think about or consider? Where do you need to consider sacrificing? And so those are just some of the ideas as well. And... Yeah, so I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Zach for being on the podcast today. Oh, also, uh, if you're you know if you're interested in you know keeping up with me, learning you know all that stuff, please subscribe to the Substack. And now, thank you to Zach so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast, and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Kayla Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.